0: All right, you guys can be seated. Today, I'm gonna to be talking about Penal Substitutionary Atonement, all right? Big term, uh, very exciting. I know you've been chomping at the bit, hoping that we would talk about this. Today is your day, all right? So, uh, what is this? This is how Jesus saves through the cross, okay? How, how Jesus saves through the cross. Why does this matter? Well, this is a gospel issue, Okay. Uh, One of the primary reasons for going through this series on doctrine uh, is that a lot of times uh, we in the church can know what we believe, but not why we believe it. And then what happens is that in our zeal, right, and our love for Christ and our love for the gospel, we decide we want to share that with somebody and they begin to ask questions that we aren't equipped to answer. And then a lot of times, because it becomes intimidating, instead of going and getting the answers and in connecting them with the right people, we begin to pull back and we stop engaging in the conversation. And that we cannot do. We just simply can't do that as the church. The fruit of that is a diminishing within the church Uh, ultimately it is generations coming up that do not only know of the Lord but they do not know the Lord and they do not know his goodness and so when it comes to this particular topic this is another one of those uh, doctrines that becomes really hotly debated and so I'm gonna like I did last week I'm gonna cover kind of what the debate is and then what it is that that I believe Scripture is telling us so define the terms, right? What is penal substitutionary atonement? Well, three different words, three different definitions. Penal, this is penalty for my sin, which is death. So there is, this is addressing a penalty that is due. Substitutionary, Jesus died in my place. A substitution was, was made, right? So there was a debt that was owed, a penalty to be paid, somebody stepped in and paid that price for me atonement is a little bit tricky atonement etymologically speaking atonement comes from middle english meaning at one ment, and that that literally translates to oneness with god now when we look at this idea or this concept in hebrew and greek it really translates to cleansing or to purging, okay? Now, that, that breakdown in the definition there has spurred all types of theories around atonement that completely leave the Bible behind, because the idea is that I've heard atonement talked about my whole life. I go to Google, and Google tells me that atonement is being one with God, and so then people begin to look at doctrine like this and go, well, this doesn't really talk about being one with God. So clearly it's got to be wrong. And then you have all these other theories that populate and they end up not even having anything to do with the biblical concept of atonement. So it's really important for us to define the term. So part of what creates this, process, this problem is the use of historical revisionism, okay? That's where people come in and they begin to go, well, Uh, that didn't happen in history and this is what did happen. Now, I will tell you that a lot of times that's not nefarious, that is a lack of research, okay? A lot of times somebody does a cursory search and they go, oh, I didn't, I don't see where anybody said that, so they must not have said it. But I did find where they said this, so this must have been the only thing they said. And ultimately that ends up with, with problems. And we find re- historical revisionism as an issue when we're talking about politics, policy, we're talking about uh, understanding of even where like we as a nation come from. This isn't just in the United States, this is all over the world. In fact, it can be n- used nefariously by uh, governments to propagandize people, right? Now, I don't think that this is a nefarious thing that happens within the church, but it is something that happens. This historical revisionism is the reason that this view of the atonement evokes such a strong emotional response because people begin to hear about penal substitution and then there are some people who because they have a different view a different historical view that they've been told they get really upset about it okay now i will argue that historical revisionism amounts to deceitful tactics whether it's intentional or not it's still deceitful if we do not hold to, to truth, if we do not hold to reality, and, and in, in its entirety, um, it's, it's really easy, you know, if you take a, a statistics class, right, uh, uh, my oldest in college, he was talking about the fact that he was in statistics, that, that one of the things the professor was telling him was that you can make statistics mean whatever you want a lot of times, because you just give the data that you want to give, right? Right that's a really dangerous thing. Like if we pull the data that we want to make it say what we want it to say, we really position ourselves in a dangerous place. So what we have to be willing to do when it comes to scripture is we have to be willing to look at all of the data and come to the place where God wants us to come, not to the place where we wanna be, right? Not to the place where I am like, oh, this is what I want to be true. No, 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 what I really, really should want And value is what God wants. So uh, let's look at a couple of critics real quick. Uh, Brian Zand uh, claims it is that, talking about penal substitution, that it is a product of modernity from Calvin, uh, meaning modern times, and is not what the early church believed. He goes on to claim that early church fathers taught nothing like penal substitution, but instead Christus Victor, the idea that the death of Christ showed Christ's victory. So his primary argument, if you go and look this up, his name's going to populate, and you're going to see his primary argument is that the church, the early church did not teach anything like penal substitution, and instead that they were teaching uh, what's, what is commonly known as uh, Christus Victor, which is Christ's victory. And I would have to argue that penal substitution does not need to be false in order for Christ's victory to be true. Okay, we do not have to say that because the early church was talking about the victory of Christ at the cross, that somehow... Penal substitution is therefore nullified because they actually work hand in hand, right? I had a debt to be paid. Jesus stepped in, he substituted himself for that. And in so doing, we see the victory of the cross, right? So they work hand in hand. Steve Chalk, another uh, leader said, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. Now that phrase right there, him coining that term has become the thing. When you listen to a lot of progressive teachers today, they will reject penal substitution, the idea that Jesus paid a debt because God put him on the cross, because if he had, that would be cosmic child abuse. God was willing to put a kid on the cross. I refuse to serve a God that would do that. That's pretty. That evokes some strong emotion, right, when you think in terms of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to the faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a construct stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. And I just want you to hold on to that, man. God is love. It rears its head all the time. Man, it's a beautiful phrase, Defining the terms, we'll get to it in a moment, God is love, but just that on your understanding of love, this evokes the idea, well, how can a loving God send a kid that did nothing wrong to pay this price? If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by His Son then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to repay evil with evil. The truth is the cross is a symbol of love. It is a demonstration of just how far God as Father and Jesus as his Son are prepared to go to prove that love. The cross is a vivid statement of the powerlessness of love. So... Both of these guys, and there are plenty more, and because of time, I'm not going to dive into them, but these are the two that kind of rear their heads in conversations the most. They pull from Gustav Aulen's book, Christus Victor, okay? So, uh, this was, uh, uh, he was a Lutheran theologian who in 1930 argued that prior to Anselm of Canterbury, this is an older church father and within the first 1000 years the church never listen to this never understood redemption in terms of a satisfaction of God's justice judgment but merely as a conquering of sin death and the devil okay so in his book which is the the thing that they will quote the most right now think about this The the idea that penal substitutionary atonement is a product of modernity, something of the modern times, right? When in reality, we should be believing in Christus Victor, right? Now, uh, penal substitutionary atonement dates back to John Calvin, Christus Victor dates back to 1930, Okay, we're, we're talking about even more modern is Christus Victor, but yet the argument is, oh, that's a modern thing. Now, I only say that to say that a lot of times we can throw logic out the window uh, to make our case and then expect people to ignore the logic that, that's being used. Uh, so, so the idea that, that is... Portrayed in the book, and again, I would I would like to argue that this was not nefarious, that this was not malice, that he sat down and said, "Oh, I'm just going to do something." I think, honestly, that based on the uh, uh, the the access he had to documentation, that he probably believed that there just really was. Nobody in the early church that was teaching this idea that Jesus took the place for a debt that we owe, that he stepped in and paid the debt. I think that he probably genuinely believed that. He essentially invented a new atonement theory. This was called Christus Victor, which he argued was the predominant view of the early church, okay? He based his arguments on the fact that early church fathers spoke with consensus about the victorious Christ. I argue again that just because we find the early church talking about Christ's victory does not mean that that the victory somehow is negated because he stepped in and paid the, the price the, or the debt due us, okay? Now, he was influenced by a man named Metropolitan Anthony Kiev. I had to look that up. That was legitimately his name, Metropolitan, who wrote in his work Dogma of Redemption, published in 1917, what kind of love is it that crucifies and who needs it? He went on to argue that a judicial or a juridical view of uh, uh, if true, only manifest God's mercilessness and injustice. This sounds very much like what we hear being communicated in some of the more modern uh, teachers or teaching today, and that's this idea that that like 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 w- it, this is this is not mercy. This is not the love we read of inside of Scripture. And so, if God is love, then God cannot simply uh, operate this way. Now. I go back and say, deceit, uh, when we are talking about historical revisionism, yes, it is deceitful. Is it intentional? I would argue a lot of times, probably not. A lot of times, and, and, and I hope that, that you'll take this in with what I'm saying, you will hear somebody that you trust as an authority say something and you just go, oh, well, it's got to be true, right? Right? And we shouldn't do that, right? The scriptures tell us study to show ourselves approved, right? It doesn't say go to church and listen to the sermon to show yourself approved. It says study. So we individually, you, have a responsibility to be in the Word of God. It's one of the reasons why we're pausing from going verse by verse and conquering some of these topics, right? Because we want to know what the Word of God says. Now, the argument being that the early church in no way believed in any form of substitutionary atonement, right? That there was a penalty, that Christ substituted himself, okay? That's the argument that is made. So we're going to go ahead and negate that argument real quick. Clement of Rome stated in 95 AD. What we're doing right now is we're looking at early church fathers. We'll get to scripture in a moment. This won't be one of those sermons where there's no scripture in it, okay? Uh, Clement of Rome stated in 95 AD. So this is one of the oldest source texts that we would have. Because of the love he felt for us, Jesus Christ our Lord gave his blood for us by the will of God, his body for our bodies and his soul for our souls. So clearly some type of substitution is he, he's holding to, right? Ignatius uh, writes in 107 AD, now he suffered all these things for our sakes that we might be saved. And he suffered truly even as also he truly raised up himself not as certain unbelievers maintain that he only seemed to suffer as they themselves only seem to be Christians. Um, As late as 135 AD, this one could go back to 70 AD. There's debate. So I just wanna push it as far forward as possible. In the Epistle of Barnabas, it reads, "For this, en- for for to this end, the Lord endured to deliver up His flesh to corruption, that we might be sanctified through the remission of sins, which is affected by His blood of sprinkling." So, this terminology with the blood, the sprinkling of the blood, this was a picture of during the uh, uh, sacrifice in the Old Testament. Not only did they sacrifice the 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 lamb, right? but they took the blood and they would sprinkle it, and this had to do with the cleansing of the effects of evil, right? So, I sin, that's wrong before the Lord, but there are, there's ramifications for my sin, so there's a cleansing that takes place. He says, for it is written concerning him partly with reference to Israel and partly to us and the scriptures, saith thus, he was wounded for our transgressions and braised for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. He was brought as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb which is dumb before its shearer. So he is connecting here in this writing, Isaiah 53 to Christ's death being sanctification for our sins. That's important because in order for uh, the argument to be made that Christ did not step in and pay a debt on our behalf, half okay that that wasn't needed then they have to you have to be able to argue that Isaiah 53 had nothing to do with sanctification and so as far as as far back as 135 probably earlier but we'll just say 135 right Christ is, you know, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended somewhere between 33 AD, 30, 33 AD, somewhere in that time period, right? So we're a hundred years later. Church fathers, right? There's writings already coming up that are connecting this as being a sanctification process, right? A cleansing, a purging, and atonement. He goes on and says that the Son of God therefore came in the flesh with this view That he might bring to a head the sum of their sins, who had persecuted his prophets to the death. For this purpose, then, he endured. So, what is the purpose? The purpose was to bring fulfillment for the sins of those that he was dying on the cross for, okay? Uh, uh said in 200 AD, But when our wickedness had reached its height and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us, and when the time had come which God had before appointed for, manifest, for manifesting his own kindness and power— how the one love of God through exceeding regard for men did not regard us with hatred nor thrust us away nor remember our iniquity against us but showed great long suffering and bore with us. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us. The only, I mean the Holy One for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. So what is he arguing? He's arguing that sin was in our lives. There was a debt that needed to be paid. Christ came and he substituted. He was the substitutionary atonement. Just a couple of more Justin Martyr, 95 AD, if then the father of all wished his Christ for the whole human family to take upon him the curses of all, knowing that after he had been crucified and was dead, he would raise him up. Why do you argue about him who submitted to suffer these things according to the father's will, as if he were accursed, and do not rather be well yourselves? And last one here, uh, Saint Athanasius, Athanasius, somewhere between 296 and 373 AD. This was written in his Discourses Against the Arians. For since it is said in the word, dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return suitably through the word himself and in him the freedom and the undoing of the condemnation has come to pass. He sends his own son and he becomes son of man by taking created flesh that since all were under sentence of death, okay, he being other than them all might himself for all offer to death his own body and that henceforth as if all had died through him the word of that sentence might be accomplished for all died in Christ and all through him might thereupon become free from sin and from the curse which came upon it and might truly abide forever risen from the dead and clothed in immortality and incorruption. now there are many many more of these that I could Cover and uh, I had many of them in my notes and condensed it down. Here's my argument okay, is that the early church fathers absolutely talked about the victory of Christ and they talked about it, it admittedly more often than they talked about the penalty that was due us for our sins and Christ stepping in. But it does not mean that they did not believe this. Christ's victory on the cross is a victory because he won back that which was his, right? He paid the price of redemption in our lives. The victory on the cross, that death, hell, and the grave were defeated was for whose benefit? It was for ours right? And so, yes, I will agree. There is a tremendous amount of conversation among early pastors in their pulpits, in their writings, talking about the victory of Christ. But there is also this general consensus that there was a penalty due us, that Christ came and stepped in and paid that price on our behalf. Now, When you come and you bring forward the fact that, hey, look, you've said that the early church fathers never talked about this. Here's evidence that they do. They concede and go, okay, well, they did that, but I've got a gotcha for you, right? So here's their gotcha, okay? And it's an emotional question. If God is perfectly just, then he can't, or a statement, if God is perfectly just, then he cannot punish an innocent person, right? You've got to agree with that. If God is perfectly just, then how does he punish an innocent person? And and then it births the question, does God need to be appeased to forgive? Is somehow God not perfect enough and all-powerful enough to where He you have to do something in order for him to forgive, right? And these, from an emotional, logical standpoint, you begin to go, well, I don't know how to argue with that, right? Now, I, I want to point back to something that... that, that I I try to point to regularly and it's called the source material. It's scripture, right? The beauty of scripture is that I don't have to understand it if God said it okay? The Word of God is a mystery. That's a reality, right? I could sit here and lay out a biblical argument for, you know, why I accept this, but I'm going to tell you there's another mystery on the other side of it. I'm not going to be able to lay it all out and fully understand it, right? The Word of God is a mystery. The prophecies of God are mysterious, right, until they are fulfilled, and then we go, oh, that's what God was talking about, right? So, but here's the the thing is that the Word of God is powerful and that the Word of God is truth, okay? So, the question I ask is, is it unjust for Christ to die for our sins? You say that, you know, how how can a God that is, you know, filled with justice do something unjust? My question is, is it unjust that Christ died on the cross, right? And was Christ punished or did he simply suffer now uh, I I would argue that he was punished for the sins of the world but there are a lot of people who would say look I can accept this idea that the debt was due me and Christ died on the cross in my place I just think that he suffered on my behalf he wasn't punished on my behalf and then if it were punishment what does it accomplish well, I think that we have to come to this agreement, right, that we were guilty before God for our sins and none of us could be forgiven without that debt being paid, right? That, that is the, the entirety of the salvation process or that's the, the first step of the salvation process for us, right? So you're in the room and you're hearing the gospel and you come to this realization, I can't save myself right? God loves me enough that all these things that I do wrong that I really don't want to admit to and I certainly don't want to talk about, right? I I keep them all bottled up inside. They're mine. I'm trying to navigate them, wrestle with them. I know I'm not finding victory. And then you're telling me that God can step in and help me with that? I need that God, right? Because I am aware of my own sin, my own debt that has to be paid for my failures. Now, For time, I'm not going to go and continue reading. I'm going to skip to verse 13. I I want you to go and look this up. But what you're going to discover is that there is a continuous thought from from here where I'm acknowledging my sinful nature and that I am the one with the problem all the way to verse 13 where he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ there is a debt that sets on me that i am not capable of paying and by the blood of christ i have been brought to him right that debt has been paid in order for me to be with christ right my sin I, i can't be in the presence of god as an unrighteous individual right so there had to be atonement we can go back and look at uh, Moses' encounter with God, right? He wants to come into the presence of God. He wants to see God. God says, you can't do that. No one can look upon me, right? Because we know that there is sin. He says, but if you'll hide your face, I'll walk by and you can get a glimpse of just the glory train, the light that, ira- that radiates off of me, right? Right? And we saw how powerful that was, right, because he comes back into the camp and hides his face because his face is glowing from, from just being in that mere presence of God. So we see a consistent thought that our sin and our unrighteousness is this thing that prevents us from being in the presence of God and that that righteousness has to be atoned for, all right? So I make the argument that we were guilty and Christ paid the debt, right? I, to me, it's not a debate, okay? So now, how could God justify this, this this coming and paying my debt? He does this through what we call imputation. That is that if my sin is imputed to Christ, then the guilt is justified. Now, imputed, that's like imparting. That's like me putting it over onto him. This is why it says that he bore our shame, right? Not that he... Notice, not that he infused, that he took it inside, right? When I bear something, right, I put it up on me, and I carry it with me, right? It's not an internalization. It's not me taking it, now that's my sin, and it's inside of me. This does not in any way make Jesus a sinner. It just says that he came, and he allowed us to impart and put that on him, and he bore our sin. He bore our shame. He carried that, right? Okay, so... Isn't the punishment for sin built into sin itself? That becomes the next question that gets asked. Okay, well, you're saying that, 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 that you, took the, you, know, you took your sin. Jesus said, hey, I'll carry that shame for you. But isn't sin really itself the, the, the thing that's punishment anyway? Because you don't really enjoy sin. And I, my argument to that is you're not sinning right. You know what I'm saying? right? Okay. If that's the case, right? You're a convicted Christian who's trying to sin because at that point conviction has got you. But if you're just a sinner running from God and somehow sin is like the, the punishment, you're just not doing that thing right, you know? Does sin, is it the, is it the, no, that is not the punishment. The punishment is to not be in the presence of God for eternity. Do you understand that when we are talking about heaven and hell, right? And we can get into the hell debate at another time, right? And, and I do believe in hell, so I'm not saying that we'll debate whether or not there's hell. Um, I, I'll just have a conversation around the debate. But heaven and hell, hell is not the issue, people, right? It is being separated from God that's the issue, right and for the for the person that acknowledges their need for a savior it is not fire insurance it is about not being with the one that loves me and cares about me that created me and the, and the closest that i can kind of you know share that is, you know, years, a couple of years ago going to Kenya and uh, I went with my oldest and, and we had a great time while we were there ministering. We took an opportunity because somebody blessed us and we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And so like it was an adventure. We were gone for two and a half weeks. When I got off of that mountain, when I got off that mountain, I called Carmen. I had not had phone reception and I bawled into the phone and I would have given it all up to be back with her right? I felt sick at my stomach. I couldn't eat. I was miserable. Why? Not because of anything else going on. My heart ached to be back with her, to be back with the kids. I did not like the separation, right? Maybe you go, well, I'm not wired that way. I'm wired that way. I'm a big baby. I cry. I like to be around my family, okay? So, I get this. Like, this is for me. I go, man, to be separated from God for eternity, right, to be separated from that which I love for eternity, that is a, that is a big thing. That is the punishment of sin, right? The idea is that sin is the, the tale of my unrighteousness, and my unrighteousness is not allowed in the presence of God. So sin is evil, and evil has consequences that pollute environments, right? So not only is it just God looking at my sin and going, okay, we've got this issue, right? But now it's also not only are you living in sin, right? But you are causing the people around you to hurt. So now I have a secondary issue with you because people around you are suffering because of your decisions, right? So we talk about justice, and we talk about justice from our perspective, right? Like, like I need what's justice for me and for my friends, right? But we don't want justice brought on us for our decisions when the things that we're screaming for and fighting for and pushing are hurting other people. Well, that's okay, right? That's, that, that's all right for other people to suffer because I'm getting what I want. But that's not a biblical worldview, right? Uh, i 've really been been wrestling with this these these images I keep seeing and i 've seen them for a couple of years, and I saw them again this week, and they man they just like i can 't get my head around it. Uh, I watched at the uh, uh, as the uh, sentencing was brought down for Jesse Smollett this week and 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 set the the sentencing to the side. People that were on both sides of that verdict, people who wanted to see him walk and people who wanted to see him go to prison, they were, there were pictures, images coming up of them in groups praying and asking God to meet their desire. So you have one group saying, God, please don't let him go to prison. And you had another group that was literally huddled together praying, God, we're asking for you to put him in prison. And I'm telling you, like something's so weird to me about that. Like, like, like right now, right, we have nations that are at war and we have people on both sides of that praying for victory. And I don't know that you think about that, but think about that for a moment. Imagine being God and having children you care about asking for a victory that causes the other one to suffer. And I don't, I don't have the answer for how we get around that. I just, I, well, I do, and it's Jesus's atonement on the cross, you know what I'm saying? Because I certainly can't fix that. You know, that, that, that is, that, is that, that environmental pollution of evil, right? So God, you forgive me, you love me, but I continue to operate in very selfish ways. This is why they had to sprinkle that blood. They had to make an atonement for the environment because there would be forgiveness there would be sanctification but there would continue to be this evil that trailed around even the people that were supposed to be the children of god so isaiah references how the atonement was made for the for the sins of the israelites but they continued to walk in evil ways so isaiah's talking about this man there's a sacrifice that's being made they're bringing these animals in they're paying the blood sacrifice they're sprinkling the blood Evil continues, right? What does that look like? There were people who were hungry and they weren't feeding them. People that were in need, they were ignoring it, right? They, there was a there was a a, a very me focused mentality, right? Well, I'm the child of God. I'm the Israelite. God loves me. Sanctification has been made for me. Hey, you need to get out of my way, right? And 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 there's this thing that that we have to remember and that is that the cross is not about me it's about all of us right it's about every single person in humanity right this was a this was a, a plea and a price paid for everybody. So it's not more for me than it is for you. And it's not more for you than it is for your neighbor. And so you may be sitting in this room right now and you might be thinking, you know, man, I I look at some of the Christians in my life and I think, man, they're really favored and blessed and I just feel like I'm out here all alone. Can I tell you that there is no greater favor from the cross for me and my family than there is for you, right? Now I can tell you that there can be fruit that can be that can be mis, mis, mistaken as as this type of like, well, he loves you more than he loves me. But fruit comes from lifestyle, from long living, right? I can plant an orange tree next to a, uh, a fully grown orange tree and that new orange tree isn't gonna bear oranges this season. You know what I'm saying? The other one is bearing oranges. It doesn't mean that this is a, you know, somehow it's like, man, this tree's got the connection. No, it is about walking out uh, the relationship with Christ over time so, This is why Isaiah spoke of the need for a Messiah because there was constantly the need for the next sacrifice and the next sacrifice because they kept walking in sin. Now, let's go to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus is speaking. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. What is that telling us? Jesus knew that he was the substitute. He knew that he was the one. Jesus wasn't wasn't sitting here having this debate. Jesus knew that he came to pay the price. There was a ransom that had to be paid, and Jesus knew that he came to pay that price. And Jesus is the sacrifice all other sacrifices pointed to. And this is another really critical thing when we are looking at Scripture. When people go, well, this Scripture says this, and this Scripture says that, we have to remember the context that all Scripture points to the cross. Every single word of God always has the cross in mind, right? Whether it's Old Testament, it's looking toward the cross. And if it's New Testament, it's remembering the cross. But the cross is always in The sacrifice was always at the center point of it. And so every sacrifice that was made through the Old Testament was in, in, the, in the shadow, honestly, of the great sacrifice that was coming. It was in that shadow so if God sent his son to die, then doesn't that fly in the face of Christ's message that God is love, right? That's the argument, right? We go back to what I said at the beginning, that they make God is love. It is not loving to murder your child. It is angry and abusive. Why? Because God is love. And man, I'm telling you, my, my soapbox, when I'm driving down the road with my kids and I see those signs, love is love, man, I just, I just, I just go, guys, let me tell you what love is. They probably get sick and tired of it, right? But love is not love. And this idea, God is love, and manipulated within that. God's not full of judgment, and God takes you for who you are, and all those things. That is not love, right? Love is not allowing my kids to do whatever they want whenever they want. Oh, it is love. It's love of myself, right? I love myself when I don't want to deal with their issues, right? Right? And I go, oh, no, I love them. They can do what they want to do. No, 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 no. I love myself. They can do what they want to do. Because if I love them, I'm going to raise them up. And I'm going to train them and nurture them. Because the reality is one day they're going to have to have a job working for somebody who is not going to let them do whatever they want to do, right? I mean, maybe I guess you could find a job in 2022 that lets you do whatever you want to do. But you shouldn't, (laughs) right? Because you have to produce something to be able to justify the pay. Watch here in 1 John chapter 4, here we go. Here's our God is love passage, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Case in point, I've made it, God is love. How could a loving God send his son to die on the cross? Well, it's a good thing you ask because John knew that we would be making that argument and he goes straight into verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Okay, well that's still loving. He came that we could love through him, right? in this is the love, right? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that word propitiation mean? That doesn't, that's, that's not a word we use. We can forget about it, right? It is an atoning sacrifice, right? A cleansing, purging sacrifice. What? One that cleanses you and I. And here's what you've got to know is that every scripture that mentions love, eternity, salvation, kindness, justice, mercy, joy, celebration, thankfulness, compassion, comfort, fulfillment, and hope. And I love hope because it ties me back to Star Wars. Do so in light of the cross. They aren't talking about themselves free and independent of the cross. When it talks about God as love, when it talks about joy deep down inside of you, when it talks about hope and mercy and all these, it is doing all of it from the perspective that a sacrifice was made. A debt that was owed was paid there on the cross on your behalf. And because it was made, come on, let's talk about salvation and kindness and justice and joy and all of the benefits of what? The cross. Genesis chapter three, sin enters the picture. Man rebels against God. What does God do? God says, all right, okay, all right. Because I'm smart and I love you, I have a plan. And in that plan, I'm going to have a descendant come through and stomp out the enemy. It's going to be awesome. Enemy, you're not going to like it. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to frustrate you. And what do we see from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6? The only part of the prophecy that we have is what? That somebody's coming through the bloodline. So in Genesis 6, the bloodline's trying to be corrupted, right? God looked down, saw that the sons of God, saw that the daughters of man were beautiful and took unto them their own and bore unto them Nephilim. Nephilim's for another sermon, right? But God said, man, this is wicked, right? It grieved him to his heart is what it says. But there was one that was found to be righteous. His name was Noah. What was righteous about him? His bloodline was pure. Right? So the prophecy is making the argument that a bloodline is coming, that someone through Eve's bloodline is going to rise up and defeat the enemy. The enemy says, well, i got to stop that from happening. Well, once he can't stop that, and Isaiah comes on the scene, and Isaiah says, hey, guys, guess what? God's coming in the flesh, right? Th- then the attack is, well, we just got to wipe out all of the Jews so that God can't come into the flesh. And so the Jews go into one exile after another trying to stomp that group of people out, and Jesus shows up on the scene, why? Because it was always pointing to the plan. The plan was always that you can't make the payment. I'm going to make it for you, right? You, you don't have the ability to do it. I do. I'm going to do it for you. Why? Because I love you. Not because I tolerate you. Yeah, God is love. God loves me so much that when it comes time for the debt of my bill to be paid and I'm found with an empty wallet, he says, I got him. He put him on my ticket, right? Right? them on my ticket i do that a lot right with my kids now right just put them on my ticket put them on my ticket that's what god and it was always going to be that way it was always going to be and you know that we can rest in in peace that that god's going to operate that way that god's going to pay the debt because because he did on the cross and so why penal substitutionary atonement Move very quickly through these passages. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are the wages? The wages, these are the ra- rations or the stipends for a soldier, right? So the wages of sin, that which we as, as, as part of his family, should be paid is that we should receive death but god in turn gives us life second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, where we started at the beginning, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He goes on in the next chapter in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, Right? Penalty was due. He talks about it in chapter two. Substitutions made in chapter three. And then that brings us back to Isaiah 53. And this is the anchor verse for so much of this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And today, we practice baptism as a sacred act to join us to him in death. And we practice communion as a sacred act to remind, that reminds us of His sacrifice. We continue to remember. We continue to be connected to the cross. It, it does not surprise me that, that there is such an attack on the very doctrine of the gospel on the cross in the church today, because if people can reject the, the very essence of the cross, if they reject that, then will they be saved? We need to understand that it is our debt paid that Christ paid that debt on our behalf and it was a heavy debt to pay. Make no mistake. Jesus in the garden, he said, the cup that I bear is one that I don't know that I can. God, if you see fit, come and take it from me. If not, I'll walk this out because I trust you, but it's gonna be tough. So Jesus was fully aware of what he was stepping into. Why? Because from Genesis 3, a plan had been made. An atonement needed to be made for the sin that had entered the world. And I just have to make this argument in the end. We need to build a case for trusting Scripture and not the need to pass it through our personal approval system. Our personal approval system should always be secondary to Scripture. And 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 I you know it's been almost two years ago that we we went through uh, and talked about uh, the the uh, integrity of Scripture right and the reason that we did that is because such a shockingly small percentage of the church today believes that the Bible is the Word of God. The argument that's made today is that well people interacted with God and then they just wrote down their interactions with their own biases and cultural influences. And so you really can't trust the Bible. And there are people who are in the church today that hold to that idea of scripture. And I've got to tell you that the problem is that when we begin to think like that, it all falls apart. There is nothing that binds it together. The word of God should be the thing that we build a case on, not our emotions. Would I do it that way? No. Let me tell you how I would do it. I'd screw it up, right? I would sin. I would do wrong. So I'm going to trust the one who does not. And listen, that same power that, that brought Jesus to the cross, that power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can transform you and I. And so I received the fact that Jesus stepped in. He was the substitution for my sin. I receive that, and because of that, I want to live my life honoring Him. I want to raise my family to know Him. I want to be a part of a community that serves Him, and I want to declare His goodness to the world around me. Let's stand to our feet as we close. All right. Listen, if you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, if you have not made that decision and prayed the sinner's prayer, and that's just something that we've Cobbled together from Scripture, right? The Scripture says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved, right? So we have the uh, we have taken Scripture and we have put together. You've heard this term, the Sinner's Prayer, right? It's not a prayer that's that's inside of scripture but it's a number of teachings from inside that help us to understand what it looks like to come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior right what does it mean it is a lifestyle change change it is him coming in and making us new Uh, and if you have not made that decision to be a follower of Christ. Our prayer ministry teams are gonna be in the back and we want the opportunity to share that with you, right? And to lead you in that prayer and and to help you begin to walk out that process of becoming a follower of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ and you're thinking to yourself right now, like, man, that was a lot of information and I don't know if it matters. Here's what I want you, here's what I wanna say, it matters. It matters. You need to understand the text. You need to understand scripture more than ever before because there is a group that calls themselves Christian. They call themselves the church, right? They come in the name of Jesus, just like He said that they would and they reject the authority of Christ. They reject the authority of scripture. And if you do not have any anchoring and understanding, you cannot be a part of the conversation. And the majority of the people that are believing it are just being deceived. And if you and I will be equipped, we can be light in the darkness for them. They do not have to be our enemies. They are our brothers and sisters. We have poor leadership in many places right now. And, and instead of just throwing those people out, we need to be light in the darkness and ready to have those conversations. And so I want to encourage you uh, be at each of these weeks as we're going through this. D- dive deeper. If I've missed something, come, let's grab coffee. Talk to me. If I communicate something wrong, I really mean it. The, the majority of the time you'll find that I might say something. You might be like, what is he saying? It's typically because I assume everybody in the room is on the same page, and that can be, I can make that mistake. I've made that mistake even recently. All right, so, so let's go in. Let's know the word of God. Let's be stewards of his word, and let's declare his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, your faithfulness. Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have always been about paying our debt. The cross has been the plan from the beginning, and now you are going. we await your return to establish a new kingdom, heaven and earth. We love you and we praise you. Lord, we ask that there would just be clarity brought to the church worldwide. Lord, that there would be unity brought to the church worldwide, that we would be less divided, more unified. Help us as we are praying and seeking your face and your will, Lord, to to consider the needs of others around us and their viewpoints, Lord, as we're coming to you. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you need prayer for any reason whether it's salvation, your sick in body, go to the prayer ministry teams in the back. We love you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. As always, go change your world.